0: Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, part two of our series on climate change and health.
1: This is a view of the world in which we live for tomorrow, but not for our children.
0: In this episode, communicating about climate change. How did climate change become such a polarizing topic? What can be done to change that? And why empathy might be the key to shifting the conversation. Hello and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Thursday, February 23rd, 2017. I'm Amy Montemuro.
2: And I'm Noah Levitt. In this episode, we're bringing you part two of our conversation with Ari Bernstein, a pediatrician and associate director of the Center for Health in the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School.
0: In part one, which aired last week, Bernstein explained what we know about the health effects of climate change and some potential strategies to reduce or reverse the damage.
2: If you haven't listened to part one, we'd obviously encourage you to go back and check it out. But if you did miss it, we'll be playing a short clip from that interview where Bernstein gives an overview of links between climate change and health. After that, we'll jump directly into our conversation about communication and climate change. And so here's Bernstein now explaining what we do know about the health effects of climate change.
1: We know enough to know that uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions is the most cost-effective strategy to preventing (laughs) uh, health. Uh, outcomes that we don't want. And the way I think about uh, the health effects of climate change uh, is that they uh, really affect all of the great progress we have made in dealing with nutritional uh, problems, infectious problems, in some cases mental health. uh, And and that's because when you change the climate, you sort of change the rules of a game for human civilization. So you know, we've only grown food for ourselves for about 10,000 years. That's occurred because the climate of the earth is where it is now. And we're pushing ourselves out of that envelope. So we're changing the game for how we grow food. Uh, carbon dioxide, is, as Sam Myers and others' research uh, here at the school, has shown carbon dioxide itself affects the nutritional content of plants. Uh, we change the way infectious diseases work. There, there is no pathogen that isn't in some ways temperature-sensitive, and especially vector-borne diseases, um, there's the prospect that climate change will destabilize where those infections can happen. Now, there's a lot of other things can affect where infections do and do not happen. There used to be malaria in Washington D.C. There isn't anymore. That's not because the climate has uh, done anything but warm since it was eradicated there. But nonetheless, particularly in places of the world where they're least able to adapt. Uh, the other thing, of course, is sea level rise. Uh, you know, lots of people live near the coast. People are moving to the coast. At the same time, sea level's rising. And, and one of the areas in which climate science has been uh, <clears throat> particularly clear uh, is on the accelerating rate of sea level rise as we learn more about the uh, melting of ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. So really, across the board, climate change has uh, effects upon health. But again... It's quite clear that if we want to do uh, a really powerful thing when it comes to protecting and improving people's health, we we would do well to reduce our use of fossil fuels, to increase uh, our rates of active transport, bicycling, walking, so forth, um, and uh, uh, really um, get a win-win in a sense. We get short-term benefits from air pollution. We get long-term benefits from greenhouse gas emissions.
2: In some ways, is it easier when you're communicating about it to focus on these are the benefits if we make changes versus these are the negative effects if we don't make any changes?
1: Yeah, no question uh, that it's better to focus on the benefits. Uh, You know, it's it's uh, it's kind of hard to articulate a motivating message is uh, climate change is bad in a big way. We can't exactly tell you how big and how bad, when or where. I mean, which is you know, a significant part of that reality right now. I mean, again, with heat or sea of rise, there's a little more uh, clarity there. In any event, people are much more inclined or much more likely to be motivated by a reward in the near term. <laughs> and and even though I think they're compelling, for example, intergenerational arguments, like if you were a grandparent saying, do you want to leave the world a better place for your grandchildren? And there are compelling uh, longer-term messages, there's no question that if you can say someone that by eating less red meat, you're less likely to die of colon cancer uh, and, oh, by the way, will reduce all kinds of uh, other things we don't want to admit like greenhouse gases, air pollution, and so forth, um, that come with red meat production, um, people are potentially more inclined to act. So, yes, there has to be, I think, a much uh, clearer articulation of how actions that reduce greenhouse gas emissions have direct benefits to people in the near term
2: and so kind of jumping off of that, I mean, I think you kind of touched on kind of I guess what needs to be done and but looking for for scientists or public health professionals what have what have they done well when communicating about climate change but I, I guess and then the flip side of that is what are what are some areas that maybe need some more work or more focus
1: I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about how we got to where we got in terms of the relative inaction on climate change. Uh, You know, it's important to acknowledge that the Paris Accord is a watershed event.
2: And a quick interjection here. For people who may not be familiar, Bernstein is referring to the 2016 Paris Agreement. The accord was signed by 194 countries and laid out a framework for reducing greenhouse gases and mitigating the effects of climate change. It also aims to limit the rising global temperatures to less than 2 degrees Celsius. And now we'll head back to our conversation with Ari Bernstein.
1: This is essentially every country in the world coming together in a peaceful way <laughs> and making an agreement to do something about a problem that we can only solve together, which I think uh, for our species is a wonderful, a wonderful achievement. Nonetheless, clearly we're not doing enough by anyone's estimation. How did we get here? Why is it that on the one hand the scientific community seems so clear that this is a you know, well, relative, relatively well understood problem with severe consequence for humanity and yet we don't seem to be able to pull the trigger on doing what we need to do. The way that climate change largely entered policy discourse was through the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, this is a UN framework that was started in the Rio Earth Summit 1992. And that idea of the IPCC was to provide the scientific evidence that described climate change to policymakers and that by doing so, they would be empowered to act in responsibly. Well, that didn't work at all. Uh, and it didn't work for a number of reasons. Uh, it turned out that, you know, there were real discrepancies uh, in understanding about who was responsible. So, you know, going back uh, to the f- uh, first Bush administration, there was a carbon tax proposed, which got destroyed in the Senate. I think it was voted down 98 to 2, or maybe it was 98 to 0. I don't even remember. It was, it was a landslide. And one of the arguments then was, why should we do something about this when China is going to be the major polluter? What's their responsibility? So you got these disagreements between countries about who is responsible. Uh, Rich nations, poor nations, north, south, there became this very sticky diplomatic uh, problem with all kinds of responsibilities, be it who is emitting now, who is emitting the past, how much should we get for our trees, uh, that sequester carbon, all this stuff became problematic. Then there were concerted efforts on the part of specific interests to undermine climate science, Uh, These came from corporations, they came from individuals, and these were um, underhanded and uh, unethical things. These were not intended in any way in people's best interest. And um, for those who have followed this, there are now lawsuits against corporations claiming, just as with big tobacco, that they hid information and purposefully misled the public and scientists um, about this issue. and, and, and But, you know, those are real and they're profound. But I think one of the biggest challenges, and this gets to the part of the question of what could we be doing differently, is that it turns out that aside from those issues, we are dependent on fossil fuels. I mean, there's nothing we can do that doesn't require fossil fuels right now. And that includes for people like me who, you know... I use electricity, uh, (laughs) uh, I eat food, uh, you know, but particularly for, you know, the people whose livelihoods depend on it, whether they're working directly in the fossil fuel industry, whether they work in the plastics industry, they use fossil, you you go on and on and on, our economy is saturated with fossil fuels. And I think that provided fertile ground for uh, doubt to be sowed. Uh, and people, at on one level, didn't want to believe that what they were engaged in could potentially be catastrophic. I mean, I don't want to think that my day-to-day existence as American is contributing disproportionately to this problem, but the truth is, that it is. I don't want to look at that reality, but it's true. Uh, and so, w- this IPCC model, where we present the data, was worked for things like the Montreal Accords, which uh, dealt with the. Um, chemicals that deplete the ozone layer, which um, protects us from ultraviolet radiation. It worked in the Clean Air Act. Uh, You know, the science was incredibly influential there, even though there was a lot of pushback there. Um, And, you know, I think the embeddedness of fossil fuels in our society has really made it much harder. The other side of it is that it became... Um, you know, sometime uh, in the early 90s and progressively since, it became less about the science and more about tribal affiliation. And that was, a, I think, a concerted tactic on the part of those who didn't want to do something about it, to make it less about what science said and more about if you are a, uh, you know, if you believe in certain other political views, you also must be... <laughs> Uh, against doing something about climate change and vice versa. And so the, the conversation moved away from evidence and science into a, you're a bad person if you think this. And that made it yet harder. At the same time, and we're seeing this in the United States right now, is that there's this enormous empathy gap. So we had, you know, on the side of doing something about climate change, this attitude that people who were not willing to do that were bad. And vice versa, that people who were advancing an agenda to deal with uh, uh, climate change were killing jobs and, you know, really didn't understand. And and that's that's something that we can do better with. We need to be much more compassionate and empathic about what it would mean to large numbers of people in the United States and elsewhere should we not use fossil fuels? You know, we can't just say we're going to go from A to B as if people didn't have livelihoods. (laughs) So I think in the communications front, you know, we could learn a lot from our colleagues at the business school about, you know, marketing and how to make our understandings of this problem compelling in the frameworks that people hear, be it religious, ethical, uh, health, economic, national security. And there's some of that, but we really can do much more.
2: And so I think you touched on something important there. And I think this has kind of been in the news lately, but this idea that, that science itself is kind of becoming politicized. Um, and so, I mean, I think you just touched on it there, but but what can be done to combat that? And I guess in the context of, for people who might be kind of doubting the health effects of climate change, what 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 can public health professionals do to kind of combat that where science is politicized, where kind of there, there, there's doubt about the effects of climate change?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and, and extremely timely. You know, this is where history is really important. There was a period of time, not so long ago, most Americans may know this, where medicine as a practice was highly unscientific, highly unscientific. It was it was essentially no different than the Dark Ages when there were apprenticeships and people sort of learned by learning what their mentor had learned, and that was based upon experience. And, you know, our experience is important, but I can tell you that if we treated patients based upon individual clinicians' experience, uh, there'd be a lot <laughs> a lot of unnecessary suffering in the world. And And it becomes very easy for people to not grasp, for example, how scientific research has dramatically reduced rates of death from heart disease, how it's dramatically reduced rates of death from cancer, how it's... Uh, dramatically increased longevity in the United States. All these things depend upon the scientific method. But for people who don't have a scientific background uh, and are fearful of science because it's so abstract and so foreign, it becomes just another point of view. It becomes like a different religion. And that's tricky because if scientists then come out and say, you know, we're not another religion and here's why, sounds like we're advocating for our tribe. (laughs) Sounds like we're really doing what any other group would do. So I think there are a couple things that need to be done. One is I think clinicians, physicians in particular, need to be much more vocal because we sit at this critical interface between science and applied science where we have to, in some cases, do science, uh, but we're always applying science or as best we can. And we see people... And we deal with people at a very personal level. And if you look at, you know, surveys about, you know, who people uh, trust in the United States, it's number one, it's nurses. <laughs> and number two, it's doctors. And so I would include nurses very much in this in this idea. But there needs to be the articulation of, you know, I'm treating you with these antibiotics. And these antibiotics exist because of scientific research. This isn't about your belief or my belief or or whatever. This is about a process that we've used to substantially improve health. And, and and that's the same kind of science and research that we're using when we think about climate change. Now, there's a fair amount of the public, I would say, and and skeptics who are at that level of complexity, where it's science is just another dogma, and it really is no different than anybody else. My view. The slightly more sophisticated arguments come into, well, yeah, I think climate change is a problem and humans are causing it, but it's not okay. You know, we're not clear that it's the right thing to do right now, uh, to do something about it. And that gets back back to the point I made before, which is that this is a view of the world in which we live for tomorrow, but not for our children. And there's no question that, uh, you know, although we've incurred enormous expense already from climate change-related events, uh, the damages are going to accelerate. And so for the moment, for the day, uh, if you wanted to uh, maximize your profitability as a corporation, if you wanted to um, essentially maintain the status quo in which fossil fuels are heavily embedded in our country, there's no question that doing nothing is a pretty good thing to do. But again, that is very short-sighted. And again, I think I I would call upon people who, you know, uh, are at the interface between science and the public. These are... Uh, journalists, these are physicians, these are meteorologists, um, and, and call upon them to say, you know, we can't think about these things in the media term alone. And that there are many angles that one can make that case. And this gets back to the messaging, be it energy independence, be it national security, be it economies. I mean, I can't tell you how many companies we've spoken to who are begging for a carbon rule because they know that climate change is going to destroy their business, and yet they, they are not empowered to act in their own best self-interest because they did so without a carbon tax, it's cost and effective. <laughs> and, you know, if I ran a business, I would make the same decision. So we, we really do need, um, uh, we do need uh, a change in outlook about how to make science more relevant to the public it's a tall order because scientific literacy in the United States is not robust, and I think we need to be careful about scientists going out and doing that because I, you know, there's the prospect that that could backfire, and I do think it it is incumbent upon you know at least from the health sector we've seen this in the national security sector we've seen the the military leaders you've seen religious leaders, <laughs> um, and and uh, I think to a certain extent health is a powerful motivator because. There's a large segment of the population that will resonate with the health dimensions of this, where they may not resonate with others.
2: Before we wrapped up our interview, Bernstein wanted to hone in on two key points that he hopes all of you will keep in mind when thinking about climate change.
1: There will be no time in the future in which it will be more cost-effective to move away from fossil fuels than the present. Now, people argue about how quickly, but no one would argue that we're moving anywhere close. No, we're not pushing the envelope on going too quick right now by any estimation. The second is that we don't have a scientific problem on our hands. What we have is a cultural uh, shift in some ways and um, a problem that exists because of our own brains. We have to sort of defeat our own hardwiring because our brains predispose us to bias towards what benefits us immediately in the near term versus the long term. And uh, that um, really requires uh, thinking about the near-term benefits, as we talked about, these co-benefits. And it also requires greater empathy. Uh, And I can't underscore that enough. I, I, I think that we, on all sides, have not done, for those of us who are earnest and honest about this, which is the vast majority of people here who really do have interest in doing the best thing, we don't understand each other as well as we might. And I think in that absence, we have arguments about different things. We have arguments about, you know, are we talking about government takeover of individual responsibility versus the, you know, common good? It's not the argument we need to have. We need to have the argument about which of the renewable energy sources makes most sense to deploy as quickly as possible here, there, and anywhere. Um, How do we get... Uh, how do we strengthen rules that exist like Reggie in New England or the California rule on carbon emissions? How do we show their benefits and make it clear that this is actually a good thing to do for the economy? I should mention that renewable energy jobs surpassed, uh, I think, oil and gas in the United States last year. So, you know, there's data here, but I also think that the empathy gap uh, exists uh, and uh, it needs to be filled uh, for us to make progress.
2: That was our interview with Ari Bernstein talking about communicating about climate change. Again, if you did miss part one, you can find a link to it on our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth.
0: And as we mentioned last week, these are the first two episodes in our reoccurring series on climate change and health. Coming up in future episodes, the key ways in which climate change will affect our food supply, plus a look at the potential impact on mental health.
2: That's all for this week's episode. I'm Noah Levitt.
0: And I'm Amy Monomiro. As a reminder, you can always find this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.